It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 31, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Colin Thompson, manager of Michigan State University's North Farm near the village of Chatham in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. The North Farm hosts a two-year residential incubator program in the extremely short season of the Northwoods, with a last frost in the first week of June and the first frost right about now in the second week of September. Colin and I talked about the ins and the outs of running a market farm as part of the university, practical strategies for overwintering crops in high and low tunnels for early season production, and ways Colin has worked with and around the 190 inches of annual snowfall in Chatham. We also had a chance to get into the culture of root cellaring in the north, and I had a chance to take a nice rant about food safety and barrel washers. Thank you for joining us this week, and enjoy the show. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software has a customizable management system to meet your farm's specific needs. CSAManagementSoftware.com. Colin Thompson from Michigan State University's Upper Peninsula Research and Extension Center's North Farm. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. That was the longest welcome I've ever had to do. <laughs> you know, in the university system, we love to uh, have acronyms for absolutely everything. So from here on, just call us UPREC. That's the easiest way Up- of referring to us. UPREC. Yep. Got it. Got it. I would think you would have gone for something like, you know, Miss Suprec or something, <laughs> you know, just to, to really. Yeah, we got to have them separated out, though. So then when we have MSU, that can be separated from UPREC. And I guess I need TNF for the North Farm or something, too. So we'll just string a there bunch of go. random letters together and that'll <laughs> work. So, so, Colin, the North Farm, I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we've established that we're part of the university system. We're part of a research and extension center in the, in the university system. But then you've got this, you've got this one little separate bit of an operation that you've got going on up there in, in, uh, Chatham, Michigan. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of an interesting story here. Um, the North farm is, it's a, a new project on an old farm. It's actually housed on the, uh, the longest running research station in the state of Michigan. Uh, this farm itself was established in 1899. It's been here for ages and it's seen a little bit of everything. It's been a, a dairy research facility. Um, they did, uh, small livestock. My main production field used to be a, a fruit orchard. <clears throat> so it's, it's seen a lot of, uh, a lot of different things throughout its history. Um, but what it is now is, is a, uh, a production vegetable farm, a research facility and, an, and sort of an educational center, uh, sponsored by the, by the university. So we've got, um, about 160 acres here as part of the North farm. We've got about 1200 for the whole center. Um, and that's, you know, as is in the UP, kind of the, the lay of the land or the, the type of ground that we're working with is, is very diverse. Got everything from dense woodlands to, um, kind of managed and unmanaged pasture ground. We've got this beautiful creek running right through the farm. And then we've got our, our production fields and, um, right here in the, the main farm site. Um, 
so yeah, we're doing a little bit of everything. We do about uh, just under five acres of, of vegetable production outdoors. Um, because of our location in the central upper peninsula, we've got a pretty harsh winter here. So we're playing a lot with uh, season extension and market extension too. Um, that's a big emphasis of what we're what we're doing here on site. Um, but really, it's it's sort of this balance of our our actual production, um, some of the data that we're trying to gather to to supply to the industry or to other growers, and then also bringing other people on site that are interested in either sharpening their skills as a as a production farmer or or just learning kind of what it takes and, and getting their feet wet in, in that sort of uh, environment or in that sort of uh, field. You told me that the back the backbone of that is your apprentice farmer program or your incubator program that you have there on the farm, right? That's correct. Yeah. So we've got, um, it's a, it's a two year residential program where we invite people who have experience on other farms or have, have done, you know, multiple seasons of work with other growers and know that this is something that they want to pursue as, as a livelihood or, um, you know, they're, they're interested in, in furthering themselves as a farmer. We invite them to come join us on the farm for those two years and start their farm business. So the way it works is they get access to a small piece of land, um, they get access to all the facilities that we have here on site, uh, including tools, equipment, our greenhouse space, our packing shed. Um, and then also they get the opportunity to kind of live and grow uh, with us as, as another farm and then the other resident farmers on site here. So it's a really unique opportunity for a beginning farmer to, to eliminate some of the barriers to entry that is access to land, access to uh, capital for those investments like the, the equipment and the um, and the you know the season extension space or whatever the case may be, um, and focus more on fine tuning their growing skills, figuring out what they want to grow and 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 what quantity, and then also kind of focus on sort of the more the business aspects, you know, developing markets, kind of getting getting all your ducks in a row. So after they graduate out of the program. They, they have a little more uh, stable footing uh, as they transition onto, onto their own piece of land or a, a rented piece of land. Um, so what we're really trying to do is offer support to the people as they start their own farm businesses that may not be there um, in a normal business startup situation. So during that two-year program, how, how much land are they farming? Uh, we've been, we've actually tossed that around quite a bit. We're trying to, we're almost trying to force people to start small and expand strategically. So in the first year they have access to a quarter acre of ground. The second year they have access to a half acre of ground. And what we're trying to, and they don't necessarily have to expand up to that half acre, but that's available to them. So what we're trying to do is say, okay, start small, get all your ducks in a row, kind of figure out what works well for you, what you need to work on, and then go through a twofold expansion in that second year. And then once they graduate, out of the program, obviously, you know, whatever scale they want to hit is, is entirely up to them. Um, but that's kind of the way it's broken down here. Um, we, we toss around the idea of, you know, opening it up and having a sliding scale for the fee schedule as, as far as, you know, if you wanted an acre, it would cost more than if you wanted a half acre. But really, we decided on this, and it's actually been confirmed for me that that was a good idea. We've got our, our resident farmer here. Her name's Land, and she's operating Bean Pole Farm. 
and she uh, she entered into it with a partner, and that partnership dissolved. And so she's managing a half acre by herself. And she said to me the other day, she said, Colin, don't ever let anyone do this. Give them a quarter acre, make them stick to that, because that's the perfect amount of ground to, to manage in your first year while you're doing a million and one other things. And this half acre is just uh, a little too much. And of course, that's going to depend on the person um, and the skill level and kind of their, their level of ambition. But if I learned anything uh, through my various different uh, uh, career or my career path, I guess, in agriculture, it was if you can if you can start slow and grow steadily, um, you're going to be a lot better off uh, than if you were to take on more than you could chew in that first year. Yeah, it's actually a big mistake that I see a lot of beginning farmers make is that they're they're constantly playing catch up, uh, trying to get their trying to get their skills, their infrastructure, their equipment to to level up to the number of acres that they're trying to produce rather than vice versa. Well, everyone gets so excited in those first few years and, and feels that kind of, I don't know, that enthusiasm about it. But, uh, you know, that can that can fade pretty quickly if you're completely overwhelmed from day one. So, yeah, we're really trying to, to help people be strategic. And there might be people that say, oh, that's, you know, that's way too little ground and everything. But uh, really, it's it seems to be a, a good fit. And I see other incubators kind of matching that scale, even after they've um, had a different sort of policy in place, they're starting to shrink back and say, well, maybe we need to reevaluate this and, and help people out in, in, in this sort of regard. So the UP doesn't strike me as a, as a real logical place for growing vegetables. I mean, when, <laughs> well, you know, here, here's, here's what I know about growing vegetables uh, in, in the UP is that, that Greg Brown actually sings about, about working really hard to try to ripen tomatoes in the, in the short summer and the sandy soils up there um, and kind of compares that to, to what it's like in Northeast Iowa in one of his songs. I don't remember the, I don't have the citation on that one, but yeah. um, you know, and it's also a place that's, it's also a place That's, that I think isn't particularly densely populated. Um, yeah, so you might not want to quote me on these numbers exactly, but uh, it is, I think, somewhere between 25 and 28% of Michigan's land mass. So it's a pretty big peninsula, but it's only something like 2% of the population. And so it is, as far as rural goes, it's one of the more rural places I've ever spent any time. Um, and so, yeah, it is. It, well, I grew up where, where you farmed, Chris, in northeast Iowa. And I always thought that northeast Iowa was this land of extremes. And that, that might sound kind of silly to uh, people who, who don't know a whole lot about the, the upper Midwest, because it seems pretty plain Jane. But um, I'm thinking more of, say, in, in, in terms of climate. So we would get those those bitter cold winters with, you know, heavy wind, a lot of darkness, uh, sub-zero temps. But then in the summer, we'd get the 100 degrees, you know, 100 degree temps and 90% humidity. And it just seemed like an absurd climate to grow in. And so um, apparently I, that wasn't bad enough for me. So I decided I wanted to, to farm in the Upper Peninsula where we look at, you know, we look at in some areas across the UP, there's a 70 day growing season. Um, where we're at in the central UP, it's a bit longer than that, but our, our last frost dates, usually first or second week of June, our, you know, our first frost date somewhere, um, first or second week of September. So it's coming up here pretty, pretty soon. And then, you know, our winters are, we average 190 inches of snow um, in our little area here in Chatham. And there are some areas across the UP. There's a place on the western end of the UP that not this last winter, but the one before had 346 inches of snow. I mean, 
Yeah, it's almost 30 feet of snow falling on one location. Holy I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're seven miles off of Lake Superior. We get all the snow coming off of there. But what's actually nice is that we get a little bit of that, bit of that uh, buffer effect from the lake. So it's, uh, I think we're technically classified as 4B, so we're not really any different as far as minimum temps go to what we were at in Northeast Isle, for example. Um, but it's, yeah, I haven't heard of anyone, <clears throat> granted I don't know everyone yet, but uh, I haven't heard of anyone having a successful fruiting eggplant in the field. Um, tomatoes and peppers, you know, you gotta, you got to have a good year with a lot of, a lot of heat and sun to, to make those work. So a lot of that stuff is grown under plastic up here just out of, out of necessity. Who are you selling your vegetables to in a place like that? I mean, I, I would think that would be a real challenge with having a, um, a vegetable farm that is essentially sponsored by the university mm-hmm. is the kind of competition that you would present for everybody else in your area. Yeah, and that's something that we've we put a lot of thought into, and we're still trying to figure out exactly what our place is, um, because we do have sort of additional resources that that are not sort of the standard in the in the industry. But um, Marquette, Michigan, is is our closest city. It's actually the biggest city in uh, in the Upper Peninsula. Um, you know, that's only 20,000 people sopping wet. So it's still a pretty small city as far as cities go. But um, that's our primary outlet for, for all these, uh, for all, all our production. Um, we're not doing, I shouldn't say we're not doing any, but we're, we're really shying away from any direct marketing. We don't do any farmer's markets. We're doing one CSA as part of like a, a workplace CSA program, mainly just to set that up so I can pass that off to our resident farmers in the coming years. Um, really just trying to establish that market for them. But what we're, what we're really trying to focus on is being completely transparent with, with what we, you know, what we're doing, what our goals are, uh, how we're here to support the farming community and the food system. Um, but we're trying to use our resources to kind of leverage new markets. So I'm working with, you know, sort of the institutional purchasers, the university in uh, Northern Michigan University is located in Marquette. So we're using some of our resources to try to get them into the local purchasing game and uh, try to focus on places like hospitals and, and um, other institutional accounts that have been uh, chronically underserved because there aren't a whole lot of uh, growers producing at large volume up here. Well, what's really unique about the upper, not unique entirely, but what's neat about the upper peninsula is this sort of, uh, sort of, ooh, independent nature and, and, um, really uh, a sort of appreciation of being self-sustaining and being able to take care of oneself and one com- one's community. And so what's neat is you got this idea of local foods, and yeah, it's not necessarily the, the standard demographic um, because there's not necessarily a lot of money up in the Upper Peninsula. But what, what you make up for that with is, is sort of this real strong commitment to supporting your neighbors and being involved in kind of, um, you know, taking care of one another. And so yeah, we do have to manage this idea of competition, and, and as a result, I'm doing things very differently than I might if, if I were just farming on my own. Um, but we're trying to be strategic about it. We're trying to uh, really use that to not only our advantage, but the advantage of the, the food system in, in general. I like that idea of, of really seeing your role as a, as a leverage point for making the market for other people, because I would imagine there's not a whole lot of market farms in the UP. 
You know, you'd, you'd be surprised, perhaps. The central UP, where we're located, has a pretty pretty uh, healthy population of small growers. Uh, most are on a very, very small scale, a micro scale. Um, you know, there are some that are shooting around the 5 to 10 acre range, but most are sub 1 acre, sub 2 acre. So they're very small, kind of on the, the line between homesteading and market growing. Um, so there are a lot of there are a lot of homesteaders. That's kind of the thing. A lot of homesteaders that use sort of their additional um, production to to bring in a little bit of extra income. So there are a lot of people that do a lot of growing, but not a lot of people that do it for their livelihood. I think that would be a hard a hard group to to market your education services to because I think those are the folks that that oftentimes have the hardest time accessing markets, you know, anything other than a direct marketplace to really have the kinds of quantities that they need and the, and the quality standards and the packaging that a place like a hospital or a university food service program is going to be looking for. Yeah. And what we're doing with is in, as far as our educational programming goes, we're trying to provide the baseline information, baseline uh, skills necessary to, produce at, you know, whatever scale is appropriate for the grower. So we're not necessarily advocating that people jump into, say, a wholesale production model. Um, you know, we, we promote direct marketing for whomever wants to, uh, you know, pursue that sort of marketing approach. And so with, say, the people that are in an incubator uh, program, their profits are their own, their business is their own, their marketing approach is, is their own, and we're here just to provide that that additional support. And so for our own production, we're searching, we're seeking out those specific uh, accounts and specific um, marketing channels. But for the people that are participating in our, in our programming, whether it's the you know, extension workshops that I offer or the incubator program, um, you know, they, can, they can shoot for whatever they like. And we're really just trying to provide whatever support makes sense for you know, their particular approach. How many of those incubator participants do you have in your, at a time? Um, well, we're shooting. So this year was our first year of actually uh, bringing people on site. Um, and we have one farm that's currently being incubated. Our expected capacity is going to be at six farm businesses. Um, and what we're trying to do is kind of stagger the cohorts. We want to bring in three at a time. Uh, we wanted to be very strategic about starting, just like the, the thing we were talking about earlier about starting small on a piece of ground and then expanding. We wanted to start small with how many people we had, just because I knew there was a lot that I needed to learn as we going to develop this program. And so we're shooting for six, bringing on three at a time so that we have sort of the veteran farmers that have been here for a year helping out the novice farmers um, develop their systems and kind of understand what it means to, to be part of this organization um, and also potentially offer some, some cross-learning and mentorship to, to those new, new uh, participants. So if all goes according to plan, uh, we're shooting for, for a max capacity of six resident farms and then our own production. So this place would be a, an interesting space with seven farms operating in the same facility. And I think you said that this is a residential program. Is, are people living there on the research station? Yeah, so we've got uh, four houses on site here. One is my own. Uh, one is for housing interns from uh, university and just farm guests and whomever might be visiting. Um, or whoever might be visiting. And uh, then we've got two more 
uh, old farmhouses across the road that are available. We're trying to keep it really inexpensive, trying to keep it um, a good option for people uh, to, to live on site. Because really, like like I said, this is a very rural area. It's a town of rather a village of 200 people. Um, so we're as much trying to develop a community around this uh, around this operation as anything, and encouraging people to be present on site and immerse themselves in this in this program so that they have the most successful experience. Um, it's not required. You know, they have the option of living wherever they want. Uh, we have the, the current participant is living in Marquette, which is about 30 miles away, but she's moving out here at the end of the month because she realized that she would prefer being out here um, just just for all the reasons that, that come along with um, what we were just talking about. So, um, yeah, we do have access to housing here. It's shared housing. Um, it's really inexpensive, but it's uh, a potential... Um, a, a potential opportunity for our participants. You guys going to set up a reality TV show there with uh, all your incubator farmers yeah. living together and, and, uh, you know, keep the cameras on to 24 seven. I mean, it could be a funding source for you in this day and age. I think that would probably get a lot of viewership, which is, which is terrifying to a degree, but that might not be a bad idea. We are trying to, as you say, you know, try to minimize competition with other growers here, but we do have to bring revenue in to, to kind of support the project. So maybe that's our, that's our uh, solution right there. Well, I always think that's an interesting dynamic when you've got, uh, when you've got an educational mission and a research mission to try, there's always a lot of pressure to actually make money doing that, but it can be really difficult when you're, when you're trying, I mean, it's hard enough to make money farming. And, yeah. and when you add in these additional pieces, um, and how, how, are, how accountable are you for bringing in funding to your five acre operation? I think I just had five or 10 gray hairs spit out of my head when you were asking that question. Sorry, dude. <laughs> Um, well, so we have, for the first five years, we do have supplemental funding through grant sources. So uh, our faculty coordinators down on campus have done a really great job of offering sort of the initial startup support for this program. So uh, one, of the, one of the faculty coordinators, Matt Raven, in the Community Sustainability Department submitted the initial grant through the USDA to secure a lot of money just to get the project off the ground. And so we've gotten a series of really helpful funds just to, just to get some of the, the infrastructure in place, get the... Uh, staffing in place and kind of um, make sure that we're, we're starting out right. Now, after the, the first uh, three years, that funding starts decreasing, especially when it comes to supporting me as, in my role. And so any of the production has to um, basically supplement that. And after the fifth year, all that funding drops out entirely. And so um, most of the investments as far as infrastructure goes have been made, right? So we've got, um, you know, we put up a, a big high tunnel here right when I showed up. I invested in developing our, our packing facility, um, you know, and all the things that go into the capital investments that go along with starting up a farm. Um, and a lot of that was supported by those grant dollars. But as far as moving on after that fifth year goes, a lot of it's going to rely on any fees that we bring in for our programming. Um, if we seek and, and uh, secure additional grant dollars, that'll be great. But really, um, you know, one of the intentions is that this place can be revenue generating through either tuition fees or through um, food production because um, there continues to be a need for that both locally and regionally. So what I really would like to see is that we make ourselves obsolete in the local market, right, so that we, we bring enough 
additional production in either through, um, you know, helping other growers that are already existing meet their production goals or bringing in enough new farmers that the, the local market becomes a little more stable. And then we would have to start looking at, you know, regional regional sales for any of our production if we continue to do that. But really that is, I mean, that is something that we're, we're trying to figure out. It's, you know, a lot of people would look at my role and say he's not a real farmer because he works for a university and is, you know, paid by the university. He gets, you know, all that extra support. But after that fifth year, I think that's when I graduate into uh, my big boy farmer pants when I have to uh, make my own wages from the, the broccoli and the carrots that are sitting out in the field right now. Well, and I don't know, I, I farmed for wages um, back before I started my, my own operation. And I, I worked as hard, if not harder in those operations than I, than I did on my own. I mean, that's, I think, you know, if you've, if you've got that passion for it, if you've got that fire in the belly, uh, it's hard not to put in the, the time and the energy. And yeah, there is that backbone of support there, but at the same time, you've, you've got, there's a demand to produce and there's a demand to actually, and I imagine for you on a, on a university research station, you've got a demand to have uh, really good looking fields. I mean, you're not, you probably can't get away with a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of things not looking the way they're supposed to look. No, it's it's definitely very much in the public eye. And, you know, I, the, the fact that I was hired on to kind of start this project really makes me feel as though I have real ownership over it. And yeah, I know I'm, you know, I'm part of the university system and everything, which is a really fantastic position to be in. Um, but what's nice is that, well, maybe it's nice. I'm not sure, I guess, but if I have a crop failure, it feels like my crop failure, or if I have a really great, um, you know, success in the field, then it feels as though that's my personal success or my crew's success. And so in that sense, I do feel really connected to this place. I do feel really invested in this place. And it's, if it's my own farm, which, you know, speaks very highly of, of how, you know, my supervisors and my coordinators here on site and back at campus have, have allowed this, uh, operation to expand and that I have a lot of autonomy and I have a lot of, um, they have a lot of faith in me and my crew and what we're doing. And so that's a really great situation to be in. And I'm really grateful for that. And so, yes, I feel like we're farming, you know, we're, we're actively um, making this place our own, but it does get a little tricky again when you get that mentality and then you step back and realize, Oh, I can't, I can't sell in the same way that I would sell if I, if I were an independent farmer you know, because of that competition or because of sort of that public perception or, or whatever the case may be. So yes, there's a demand that we bring in revenue. Um, but there's also a demand that we do so without stepping on other people's toes. So it is kind of a delicate, delicate balance or an interesting dance that we have going on here. I think it's something that the boards of directors and institutions and, and, uh, and other organizations that get involved in agriculture need to come in with a higher awareness of, cause I, it's a big mistake. And I, I, I've seen this over the years, even back uh, at Deep Springs college, which where I went to school for my first two years located on a working beef and alfalfa ranch. And that, that demand uh, every now and then by a board member walking in and going, well, I have a friend who says there's no reason we aren't making money on this uh, at this college, raising, raising cattle. And, and without any recognition of the sorts of, of handicaps that had been put in place on raising cattle with 24 students who uh, were, were overrun with testosterone and didn't know how to drive tractors, uh, you know, and, and, but, you know, 
I think similarly, and I don't know of any institutional operation, whether it's whether it's a farm that's owned by a university or whether it's a farm that's owned by a, a government organization or a nonprofit where where there aren't significant barriers put in the way of profitability and what's already, like I said earlier, a marginal enterprise. And yeah. I just think I, I wish I wish there was more awareness on on the part of of organizations on the part of boards of directors and supervisors of, of what that does. You know, it's one yeah. thing to be farming for somebody. If so, you know, you're a farm manager for somebody who owns a farm and they're like, make me money, do whatever it takes. And, and another to be doing it in an environment where somebody says, well, you know, you, you know, you have to pay these kinds of wages or you can only work these sorts of hours or you've, you know, you've got to provide health insurance for your pickers or you've got to, you, know, you can't market in ways that are competing with the rest of the marketplace. Correct. And I think, you know, the, the perceived competition within that marketplace, say from other growers or other purchasers or, or whomever, it, it seems as though that is lessened to a degree if they understand the value um, that you're contributing in, in other ways to that community or to that marketplace. It seems like there's less pressure put on that. So we, you know, of course, we're going to have our, our critics and of course, we're going to have people that don't understand what we're doing and, and therefore don't like what we're doing. But there are those folks that exist in, in this community and um, the surrounding communities that say, yes, I understand they're putting, you know, putting food into the market and that might take away from other people in, in some way. But uh, we also understand the value of what they bring to this community in, in terms of additional resources, additional information. You know, our little community of 200, um, they've, they've benefited over the, the decades that we've been here, um, from the university presence. I mean, Chatham, an incredibly rural community in, uh, central upper peninsula of Michigan would be a blip on the map in many ways. Um, that, that, well, not even a blip on the map unless you, uh, have some sort of, you know, redeeming quality. And I shouldn't say it that way because it has many redeeming qualities, but the fact that the university is here has really supported that this community throughout the years. And so I think there's a balance there too. And, you know, we're trying to, trying to make sure that in our early years, as at least in the North farm or on the North farm side of things, that we're sensitive to what people might be perceiving or what their idea of what we're doing is and try to be very, like I said, transparent, good communicators, um, and try to listen when we do either get criticism or suggestions so that we can best fit what, what the need is, um, and best service that need. So you have a really strong background in season extension. Um, can you, and, I, and I'd like you to lay, lay a little bit of groundwork with that. And then I want to ask you about, about how season extension is working with that 190 inches of snow up there and, and what sorts of techniques you're, ha you're finding need to be applied as far north as you are. But, but first, tell us, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, well, I, you know, I, I got pretty lucky uh, early on connecting with the right people, I think. So I um, learned to farm from some folks that were direct descendants of the, the whole Elliott Coleman School, right? Mike, Mike uh, Bollinger and Katie Baraska at Riverroot Farm in, in Decor worked directly with him on his uh, property. And so when I joined their team, um, it was... It was a, a very eye-opening experience in many ways because my my whole idea of agriculture was kind of shifted. Uh, a lot of work with you know movable structures, a lot of work with uh, very intensive plantings, but also you know we were we were in an area and Chris, you know this. There's a lot of a lot of market gardeners, a lot of market growers in Northeast Iowa doing very similar production models. Um, yeah. 
And what we were trying to do in that same marketplace, um, because these, these two were so innovative and, and really great um, visionaries, was focus on the bookends of the season, right? Use those, those structures to bring in, mark, or bring in products at, at the right time so that we're not in competition. We can have that competitive edge. And then also introduce new products to the market. And so working with them was a, a really great introduction to this con- concept of season extension. And through that, I got linked up with uh, Four Season Tools, and I worked with them for four years or so. Um, and I knew you had Greg Garbos, the, the president of that company, on earlier. And he was a tremendous man mentor to me too, um, just to, to kind of understand the, the ways in which we could push season extension to uh, really kind of uh, get maximum gain. Um, and so that, that to me was a, an incredibly valuable experience working on sort of the, the back end of, you know, the R&D, the, um, the construction, the manufacture, the sales of season extension structures and season extension systems that gave me a, a very unique perspective as I turned around and then applied it on the farm. Um, one of the more valuable experiences I think I ever had, though, was actually last uh, last August. I uh, was invited, um, and I still am trying to figure out how I got this invitation, but to a, uh, it's called the Frozen Ground Summit, and there was a meeting of 25 or 30 of some of the nations, um, and uh, I include Canada in that, some of the, the best winter growers um, around. And it was basically our opportunity to sit down around table and, uh, and talk shop and compare notes and see what's working for people and, and what's not working for people as far as, you know, what what uh, materials are you using, what weight of row cover are you using in the deep winter, how many um, you know, how many inches off the bed are you are you hanging that? What are you using to support it? What are you able to do in the field as far as overwintering goes with your your conditions? Or you know, even even talking about the need for additional temperature and humidity and light data uh, was, a, was a big message that came out of that. And so I invested in data loggers here on the farm, and so now I'm able to track that throughout the season and understand what are the exact conditions that we're we're dealing with here, and how does that compare to, you know, Paul and Sandy Arnold in New York or Elliot in Maine, uh, whoever else is sitting around that table. And so as a university entity, we, we have the ability to kind of, um, you know, invest in some of those technologies and then use our networks to, to broadcast that information. And so, yeah, season extension is a big part of what we're doing up here. Um, been pushing my own limits with that, too, uh, trying to introduce people in the area to some of the techniques that I've I've learned and, and applied over the years, um, and it's amazing with with, with the uh, funding that's now available for people um, through EQIP or through NRCS. Um, I mean, in our two counties here, Alger County and Marquette County, this year there's over 20, 22 or 24 new hoop house structures going up. Wow. So that, I mean, that says something for a very rural area of the country. Tell me about what what are some of the season extension techniques that you've learned about over the years. I mean, we all, I think we all know, like put up a hoop house and grow some tomatoes. Um, and I think everybody's probably somewhat familiar with the Elliot Coleman, uh, model of, you know, wickets and, and roll covers, uh, yep. inside of a mobile tunnel. But what, what are some of the tips and tricks that, that you put out there in your educational work now? 
Sure. Uh, one of the things that was pretty eye-opening, and this was a, a topic of discussion at that, that summit um, I referred to, was um, what, what kind of fabrics or what kind of covers do we actually want to use inside the, inside the high tunnel for winter protection? And so, like you said, Chris, we get 190 inches of snow. We've get, we get uh, long periods of very cold uh, temperatures and we get very little light. I mean, we're above the 46th parallel, so we get very little light uh, in in those winter months. And so we're trying to capture as much as we can and release as little as we can. And so we've, you know, Elliot originally was saying, okay, you put a row or a, um, a layer of Ag-19 over everything, and um, that's you're good to go to get additional winter production. Well, we've moved into. Uh, you know, putting on heavy layers of Ag 30 or Ag 45 or, um, you know, even uh, opaque frost blanket and removing it during the day so that we can have all that solar gain, but then we release none of it or as little of it as possible overnight. And so that's something that we're really uh, working with is different ways of supporting those fabrics so it makes a little more sense as far as removing and putting them back on. Uh, Adam Andre at MSU introduced me to this, but the, the cables that run along the length of the structure to support those row fat, the, that row cover instead of the wickets or the quick hoops, um, so it just slides down the cables. Um, it's a pretty slick way of doing it. It's a little trickier if you if you've got you know three or four layers of Ag 30 hanging off of it over a 144 uh, foot long span. But that is something that we're we're definitely working with. And you know, in the in the central Upper Peninsula, I was able to get harvest out of our tunnel every month out of the year. Yep, and so that's that's it says something. I mean, it's working. So tell me, so that cabling system, because I mean, really, and we did winter production on my farm for, for 14 different, 14 years. And it was a, the, the biggest pain in the was putting the fabric on and off. And to the point where we, we tended to ignore it over the winter and just leave it on. But obviously you can't do that if you're going with some heavier protection and it, and because we did that, it really limited us to spinach in the middle of the winter. Um, We could have done, I think a lot, a lot larger diversity of crops if we'd have, if we'd have been willing to put the management into it. Um, what, tell me some more about this wire, this wire setup. Well, you said the wires run the length of the high tunnel. Yep. Yeah. And that can go either way. Um, it depends on kind of how you have your beds oriented and in your structure and how you move around in the structure. But, uh, basically what we did was, um, so our, our setup is a little different in that I don't have end walls on either side. I actually have a, a germination room that I wrapped in plastic that sits inside of our, our, our high tunnel itself. So we have a 30 by 192, um, four season tool structure here on site as our main kind of, uh, season extension structure. And the first 48 feet I dedicate to a heated transplant space. And that is, um, like I said, wrapped in plastic so as to trap that heat as much as possible from the collar tie to the ground. So we're not heating that top six feet of, of structure. So at that 48 foot mark, we've got another 144 feet of production, but that means I don't necessarily have an end wall to secure these cables to. So what I did, just drive T posts in at the end of, uh, at the, end of the, the beds and pop a hole in it uh, to secure. I just used the uh, fence tensioners for high tensile fencing and used that wire and ran all the way the length of that structure to the other end. And uh, what, what I had to do because it was such a long structure was I took pieces of half inch EMT conduit 
cut a slit in it with uh, with just a sawzall and dropped the cable into that uh, slit so that it had additional support that I, I then pounded those conduit pieces along the length of the structure so it had support along the along the cable run and then just leave a tennis ball over the top of it so you don't mess with your fabric too much <clears throat> and then all you have to do it's especially nice if you have two people. Um, I did this alone for most of the winter, but if you got two people, you literally just walk down the length of the bed, pushing that fabric to uh, to one side. And because we had a long structure, I actually had three separate pieces of fabric, so that all that uh, or three segments of fabric there is right. three high. But uh, it was really easy to move move that out of the way um, and open up that up, open up those beds. I like that. That that seems like a vast improvement over the over the wicket system. And and you know when we when we did it, we were always trying to. It was like putting sheets on a really big bed. Yeah. Um, and it, <laughs> be surprised. Lumpy I mean, bed. it's it's one of those things that works really well when when uh, when you're in sync with your partner. But when things are a little bit rough, it it uh, it rapidly devolves. Sure. And what we noticed too, uh, one of the advantages of, of this particular. Uh, uh, system was that you don't have those uh, free zones between the beds where the fabric is sitting directly on the on the ground or is uncovered entirely and so by using one large sheet that covers the entire growing space you eliminate some of the frost creep even in the in the center of the bed or in the center of the structure Um, you create one large environment for for that heat to be trapped and and that worked really well for us we got a lot of uh, additional warmth in that space that I don't think we would have got if we used individual bed cover. Thanks for describing that in detail. I think that's that's really interesting stuff. Now, are you growing mostly low-to-the-ground salad greens, or are you doing things like kale and Swiss chard that are more upright plants? We did we did a little bit of both. Um, I did uh, kale and chard in in our structures as well as some had lettuces that are um, a little you know not much taller but a little taller perhaps. Um, they didn't perform as well. Um, but uh, we did get production off of them. Uh, that was more kind of the, the you know, up until, I don't know, January, and then uh, they kind of petered out. Um, but the, the salad greens, actually what was really most successful was sort of this, uh, almost a succession of, of planting, some for winter harvest, some for, um, you know, just overwintering. And so we had... We had head lettuces over winter. We had, um, you know, a variety of different salad greens over winter. We had kale and uh, chard over winter that then came back real early in the spring. So we were able to get head lettuces two months earlier than anyone else in the market here without without breaking a sweat. Um, that just, you know, kind of took a little bit of space in there, but allowed us to get, you know, that real early spring production. And so we're, we're kind of playing with a variety of different things, both harvestable crops that you would plant and let them coast that sort of their harvestable size versus the, um, you know, the stuff that just started out and then uh, regrowth in the spring. The biggest so thing tell me, we- tell me how that works, Colin, like, like with the, the head lettuce sounds really intriguing to me because I mean, compared to salad mix, you know, head lettuce can be similar revenues on a per square foot basis mm-hmm. and, and require so much less work. And I really like this idea that you just laid out of not having stuff to harvest in January and February, but having things planted that are sort of in a holding pattern over the winter and then can spring mm-hmm. forth in the spring. So can you tell us some details of, about how you did that, let, that head lettuce production? 
Sure, yeah, it was basically just the real late planting of a transplanted head lettuce crop. Um, that wasn't necessarily any different than, than what we do, um, you know, for winter production. It was just uh, transplanted a lot later and then protected throughout that season. So we use the same sort of technique to actually uh, to cover it, to um, protect it over, over the winter. <clears throat> but it was, it was transplanted out probably in, oh man, I'd have to look at my notes to be sure, but uh, I'm guessing in... For us, mid-October, uh, early to mid-October, and so it was very small. And I didn't actually anticipate that it would work. I thought it was just going to either um, die off or, or immediately bolt or something once the um, warmth came back. But really, it was it was the sort of thing we just transplanted it in at uh, at a small size and and protected it throughout the season. And um, as soon as it had the conditions that were favorable. Uh, it, it took off, and we had a little bit of loss, but really it it was incredibly minimal. Um, and, yeah, like I said, we were able to move head lettuces far before anyone else had any access to. Now, I should say that we do have an advantage having such a large structure that we're working with. Um, it would be a little trickier uh, in this area to do that with a smaller structure that tends to be a little bit colder. But what we're dealing with here is just basically – you know, the light levels here are, are, are incredibly low in January and February. Um, we have virtually no growth coming off of anything. If it's, right. you know, if, if, if not because of the lack of sunlight, it's because any sunlight that's there is shaded out by the seven foot wall of snow that's on the side of my high tunnel. And so um, we're really banking on sort of either getting that coasting through the winter or just prepping things so that they're ready to start up in the spring. And we did the same sort of thing. I know overwintering onions is not a new thing by any means, but I wanted to try in our conditions overwintered onions in the field under low tunnels. And so I did that, just transplanted onions. Um, and we had huge success with that. And I think part of it's due because of the, the snowfall that we get offering some insulation to those things. But we had the things that surprised me most that actually worked. The overwintered onions in the field did great. Um, we didn't have any collapse of our little low tunnels, which was a big concern. The head lettuces in the, the big structure did really, really well. We had no bolt on them and uh, very little die off. We actually had, and this was an accident, believe it or not, but we had overwintered radishes that bulked out in the spring that we were able to sell uh, real early oh, really? off and, and that was kind of surprising that that worked too they didn't bolt like I expected them to um, and then we were able to get our salad mixes in probably two and a half months earlier than, than anyone else had from those ones that had been overwintered for spring regrowth and that to me is a really good use of our energy up here um, is because we, unless you get your planting date perfect um, you know you're going to have a tough time getting consistent harvests uh, throughout the season unless you have a lot of space dedicated to that. Whereas if right. we can prep it and have it ready for that early spring regrowth, we can really hit the ground running in the spring. Well, and I think in a lot of ways that actually gives a farmer more benefits. I mean, January production is fine for the people who can get it, but, but having establishing yourself in the marketplace in April or March can really give you a leg up when, when everybody else's vegetables are rolling in in May, June, and July. Yeah. Yeah, and we're trying to promote some of the other crops, too, that people haven't been doing up here, which was it was kind of eye-opening because these are not necessarily new things, um, but it's just that people 
people are a little nervous to try things out that they don't know if, you know, if they don't know that it will work for sure, they don't want to necessarily take the, the risk on them. And so given that we have the ability to do those sorts of things without, at least in these first few years, without losing the shirt on our backs, um, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll try certain things to show people that, yes, it can be done or no, it needs to be tweaked. And so we did, you know, our spring carrots, for example, seeded out in March, and we had carrots in the marketplace before anyone else did. And that started opening people's eyes a little bit to, you know, what we can do some of these other crops. It doesn't have to be just the spinach and the Asian greens and the salad mix. Um, there are other options that we can potentially, uh, you know, we can we can bulk out our farmer's market booth in, in May in a way that we haven't in the past. All right. So, Colin, I think this is probably a good spot for us to take a break and get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Carl Hammer, the founder and the owner of the company, likes to describe potting soil as a set of promises, a promise that it has the nutrients the plant needs, that it has the microbes the plant needs to help forage those nutrients, and that it's free of weed seeds. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it year after year in soil blocks and in traditional cell flats. We even grew rosemary plants in pots for multiple years, a real testament to the structure of the soil, which can keep the microbes alive over an extended period of time and provide good aeration for the roots on an ongoing basis. When you put plants in containers, whether it's a five-year-old rosemary in a 20-gallon nursery can or a 24-day-old lettuce seedling in a 1020 cell tray, you need an optimized matrix of materials that can produce a healthy plant within a restricted media volume. Vermont Compost Potting Soils provide just that consistently year after year. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software is designed from the ground up to manage the CSA you operate from customer sign-up right through delivery. Farmigo staff will work with you to customize the dashboard for your farm based on the way your CSA works. System setup is free, and the system can be configured for a wide variety of CSA models, from the traditional box plan right through fully modifiable boxes. On the customer side, Farmigo offers a portal for members to sign up, make payments, and access their account to manage vacation holds and site changes, all with the control by the farm over what can be changed and when the changes can be made. On the farmer side, you can send fully customizable confirmation emails and auto responses and generate reports to help you manage everything from harvest and loading the truck right through delivering the CSA shares. And they offer amazing customer support to you at no charge. They'll even call you if you need help. Learn more at csamanagementsoftware.com. All right. And we're back with Colin Thompson. So Colin, you mentioned that the Chatham's a town of 200 people or you said a village, not even really a town. Um, How's, how's it going being single up there in the UP? (laughs) You know, it's, uh, it's kind of a a shift for sure. Um, I love it though. Honestly, it's a, for a town of 200, it's amazing what we have here. Um, It's kind of, it feels like a historic town in that everything you could possibly need exists here. I mean, I can, if I, if I look out my window right now, I can see we've got a credit union, a bank, we've got, believe it or not, a little cafe that focuses on sort of the fresh and local side of things. We've got our co-op store, which is a a more or less a general store that has full service grocery and uh, hardware store. And, and this is what gets me most excited. And I know the crew is excited. We had just had a, uh, an ice cream shop 
open up in town here and we got a coffee shop and bakery opening up not too not too in the not too distant future so <clears throat> there's a you know there's a lot to do and, and the up itself is well i always say that my my kind of two passions are agriculture and outdoor recreation and if you're into outdoor recreation this is this is one of the best places to land we're right off of lake superior um we've got miles of single track mountain biking trails those 190 inches of snow in the winter means i'm out in the skis every day i mean that's that's how i move around the farm in the winters on my backcountry skis and so it's you know while it's um you know dark and cold for a lot of the a lot of the year um there's a lot of really great things to do and a lot of really great people up here and what's really exciting too is though that you know with what we're doing on this farm site is we're we're bringing people in to live on site here and like i said earlier develop a community around this space and so that's really you know that's really nice to have additional people that are like-minded and are passionate about the same sorts of things you know as my neighbors um it's really quite a quite a special thing to have in place but to that end, Chris, you know, if you know of any uh, eligible ladies out there, feel free to send them up my way to the UP. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll keep our ears open. And, and, you know, you are talking to about 1,500 people right now. Well, so should, who knows? Be very careful yeah. with what I say, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this is the uh, Farmer to Farmer podcast and single service. Yep, so. Exactly. Well, I know that weed dating thing is now a big thing for... Uh, for farming conferences and whatnot, so that's you know there's there's a lot of energy it seems going into hooking up farmers with uh, with other farmers. So maybe your podcast needs to be a dating service. There we go. So we'll, we'll maybe we'll go for that sponsorship by what's what's that uh, farmersonly.com. You came into a situation that wasn't operating as a market farm, but had historically been involved in in production. So what kind of facilities existed on the farm when you got there, and then what have you put into place since arriving? Yeah, so it, it's it's a beautiful farm with a lot of, you know, it's one of those um, sort of typical historical farms that has a lot of roof space, a lot of covered space, which is, as you probably know, very valuable on any type of farm. And so when I came to the site, we had, like I said earlier, four houses that uh, were still livable, believe it or not. Um, and then we have uh, three different outbuildings, one that's just kind of a storage barn, one that is the old dairy barn, and then another that is kind of our, our workshop. It's a Quonset hut. And so <clears throat> those have kind of changed shape a little bit. Some of them have, some of them have not. Uh, the kind of, we're calling it the Grange. Um, it's a... It's the kind of center of the farm, the heart of the farm to a, to a degree. It's where our packing shed is. It's where we do our morning meetings. But basically, we took this old barn that had a dirt floor and, and nothing in it and uh, poured a concrete pad. I uh, built um, a couple bathroom facilities and storage facilities, put in walk-in cooler, put in water lines and drainage, and basically made it. It's a 35 by 70 foot uh, space. And so it's this beautiful packing facility now that we use uh, weekly for our for our produce delivery. And really what's, what's kind of interesting about developing this sort of um, operation is that we're not building to the scale of a single farm, right? We have to right. build with, uh, you know, the other six farms in mind so that <clears throat> while if it was just us doing our production or during the winter when it's mainly just me doing my production, um, these facilities seem a bit excessive uh, in the heat of the summer with, you know, six other operations all using or sharing the same facilities. We got we to gotta be uh, to the right scale. So that's something that we're keeping in mind as we're developing these these facilities. So we've got that that uh, barn there that we've spent a lot of time and energy in. 
one of the houses here is uh, actually we're using the basement as kind of our uh, well, twofold, really. One is our, our germination space. So because we have uh, pretty significant cold, either even into April and May, um, and snow and, and all the things that come along with the UP spring, um, we, we set up a, a germination room with various different lighting systems, a germination chamber, so that we can start in there and then move it into our hoop house facility, our greenhouse space. Okay. Um, and that's been that's been really great, especially for things like uh, the lettuce transplants going into the high tunnel or for our onion, leek, and shallot transplants. Um, you know, some of those real early started crops. Um, so tell, tell, me about, tell me about the light. You said you've got a germination chamber and then you've also got a lighted space. Yeah. So... Can you tell me a little bit more about how that's set up? Because I know a lot of people are are doing this on on a on a very small scale. Are starting things indoors in the basement and then and then gradually getting them outdoors to the to the greenhouse area. Yeah, we've got kind of a couple different setups that we're trying to compare and um, you know provide some information on. Uh, we've got just your standard fluorescents. Uh, we didn't even do T5. We were standard T8 bulbs. We're doing um, you know the the racking system that you probably have seen on uh, any home gardener or, or a small production farm with um, you know just uh, suspended lights over over racks. Um, and then we're also doing a little bit with um, believe it or not high pressure sodium lights. Uh, you can also do metal halide, and there are arguments for each. But I decided to go with high pressure sodium just because they're under the light for very little um, or short periods of time. And then also um, we might use those lights for, for other purposes in the future. Um, so we've got basically, it's a pretty small space that we're using, but I've got pallets up on, on cinder blocks as sort of our main bench space. And then I have light bank setups uh, suspended over that um, so that we get we get a light meter so we're taking reads on everything to make sure that our, our distribution or our, our spray is, is correct. Um, and then yeah, we we built a just a a pretty basic germination chamber uh, using sort of a, a wire rack, some some foam board insulation, a, a water heater element, and an auto uh, fill valve from a stock tank. It uh, cost me like 200 bucks to put together, and um, has really been a, a pretty valuable thing for us to have here on the farm. Um, it's pretty rustic. The whole setup is um, pretty pretty basic because we are. It's, it's kind of interesting because we're trying to demonstrate not only best practices um, in most instances or, or as good as we can get, but also um, sort of present them as an affordable option for other people in the area that might want to adopt some of the things that we're doing. Um, and so I can't remember what uh, what the light setup cost us, but I got them with HTG Supply. I got them from, it's a pretty inexpensive light bank. It's definitely not the Cadillac model, um, but it, it definitely worked for us and allowed us to get a, a real early start before we did move it out into our heated greenhouse space. Um, I would love it if we had more lights. I'd love it if we had more space. But uh, we're, like I said, we're working with existing facilities, which is part of the, the game that we're playing here. That space also functions for as our, uh, our squash storage um, in the winter because it is a heated space and the rest of the buildings are pretty pretty cold throughout the winter. Right. And so we're, we're doing our storage of our, our winter squash down there, which is, you know, I would love to have a four foot door with a concrete pad to roll pallets in and out. But reality is, is, uh, it's a standard, uh, man door and we're loading them by bins and we're doing, doing a lot of winter squash, uh, up here. And so that's a, a challenge that we deal with, but you know, uh, who doesn't have challenges that they deal with on the farm? Um, 
So, yeah, in addition to that, we've got an old dairy barn facility. Um, this, if it, we were talking earlier about potential other sources of revenue. Um, this right. one, I think, could be used for a, uh, uh, the, the backdrop of a horror film. It's, uh, <laughs> definitely, it's seen better days. Uh, a lot of, um, you know, heaving over the, the many winters up here and inadequate drainage have caused some, some pretty rough, uh, concrete in the basement. But, um, that's mainly storage at this point. And then connected to that, uh, as part of an old barn was our root cellar. And we've got an 800 square foot root cellar on site, um, from 1913. And that, uh, that to me is a, a pretty valuable asset for, for our production up here. Um, because while well, we're, we're surrounded by Scandinavians and they love their rutabagas and their pasties. So, uh, the more root crops that we can do, the better we're going to be in, in the deep winter months. Um, well, an eight, 800 square feet is nothing to sneer at and, um, yeah. for, for root cellar space. And the, the biggest challenge that I've always had with root cellars, and, and I experienced this uh, when I when I was managing the gardens back at Seed Savers, and it really soured me on the whole idea of root cellars, uh, was getting it cold enough fast enough in the fall. Is is that an issue for you? You know, it hasn't been, and I anticipate having to do more of that in the future if we want to have long-term storage, but... Um it's yeah, it is the tricky tricky thing that people work with because we have no problem keeping it at the right temp throughout the the main part of the season. Uh, we we had very little in there. I basically sold everything out of that space. Um, I don't know by Thanksgiving or by Christmas last year, um, just because our production wasn't that big and and it's a huge space. And so what I was more worried about really was that uh, you know without the heat of respiration from those crops, I was worried that we'd get a freeze out in there. Didn't have to worry about that, but yeah, loading it was a, a bit warmer. But um, you know we've we've talked about throwing a cool bot in there to to try to drop that temp, but it's such a huge space that uh, to cool that amount of space, um, it, it, it's not. Uh, it's not something that you can just put together willy-nilly. Um, but last year, you know, this, this inaugural season, I guess, um, we we stored everything in there that you would expect to store, you know, your, your potatoes and carrots and parsnips and cabbages and all that. And uh, the only thing we had left, and I wanted to leave some things for just the storage comparison or, or, or see how well they did, were our, um, our potatoes. And we didn't have any issues with spoilage in the, in the fall because everything seemed to enjoy their environment. And I had potatoes that I was able to pull out of there in, in early June just as it started warming up in there and uh, things started to sprout that had lo- not lost any quality. And so that wow. really got me excited about the space that we have. And, yes, I think there are a lot of things that I'm going to have to do to kind of uh, bring it up to sort of our modern standards. But um, for, for very little inputs, uh, we had phenomenal storage out of that space. Are root cellars pretty common on farmsteads up in your area? You know, it's one of those things, uh, once you once you know to look for them, you seem to find them everywhere. Um, most of them are in pretty rough shape just because no one really uses them all that much anymore. Um, ours, when, when I walked onto this property, um, it had been wide open for about 30 years, and so it was... You know, it was in. It had about six inches of grime and grit and slime at the the bottom of it, and we had to do a, a bit of work to get that that place to an operational um, point. But uh, that's pretty common to see sort of these rundown root cellars. There are a few active root cellars um, scattered around the the countryside here, 
um, but most of them are being underutilized, which is something that we're hoping to, to kind of change if we can demonstrate the, the proper usage of some of these historic uh, root cellars. Well, and I assume you've been in contact with with uh, the the Fisher Merits over in over near Duluth, right at the food farm. Yep. Yeah. And uh, okay. well, John, the Johns, uh, John Hendricks and John Fisher Merritt did a a great OU this last year, the Organic University at Moses, about cold selling and root root uh, root cellaring of of crops. And you know, his modern I don't know what he calls it a modern root cellar. John Fisher Merritt is pretty impressive, and it's a it's a long cry from what we have. But uh, I would love to have the same sort of systems in place here, um, and kind of show what what really is possible. Because like I said, you know, people really love the storage crops up here. It's something that allows us to extend that market season substantially, um, and it's something that a lot of people do have access to. So um, if we can if we can focus our efforts on that a bit more moving forward, I think that'd be really great. And I think I think storage crops are sometimes under undervalued as a potential way to extend the season. You know, it's I mean it's really sexy to grow spinach in January, but it's it can be really effective on a farm to to invest in those storage facilities and it's it's more scalable more rapidly, I think, yeah. than than expanding your actual winter production is to expand how much storage space you've got for crops that you can be releasing all winter long. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you have the facilities to kind of move around or the equipment to move around those bulky and heavy items, um, you know, then, then you can really sort of ramp up your production without, you know, without changing your systems too much and yeah, not investing in steel and plastic in the way that you would have to, you can do it all in the same field that you produce all your other crops. Um, but yeah, we see a lot of value in those. And, and I think, uh, I think that's something that we're going to focus. I would love to do a little bit more research on, on sort of, uh, low cost, options for root cellaring up in up in an area like this um, because I do see it as a, as a huge potential market for us and for other growers in the area uh, plus I just I love growing you know I love growing those crops the the, the carrots the parsnips the, the beets are some of my favorite to grow so it's a good fit for for me but hey Chris I, I, I did want to ask you one question too okay um, that, turn, turn that, the tables here turning the tables yeah we uh, we're as I was talking about before we're kind of developing our packing facilities as everyone does. We've got a really nice facility that sits here currently, but I'm in the process of um, building, uh, we did a big expansion of our root crops this year, and I'm in the process of building a barrel washer, which is, seems to be kind of the, the basic piece of equipment for people wanting to do uh, more root crop production. And so I know you're a food safety guy, and I've been doing a little bit of training in that too, but really what I'm, what I'm curious about is best materials for those sorts of those sorts of projects. So as we both know, wood is starting to get kind of a bad reputation in the food safety world because of how porous it is and, you know, it's, it's lack of being, or it's inability to be sanitized effectively. Right. Cause it can, <laughs> cause the bacteria can kind of get into those pores and, Correct. and it's impossible to get them off. Yeah. Yep. And so, but that's kind of the standard material that people are using for barrel washers. Um, and that's kind of the, you know, what everyone's been using. Um, I'm curious cause I have access to a few different materials and I'm trying to do this on a shoestring just to demonstrate it for other people in this, in this area. Um, what would your opinion be if you were to select say wood versus a non food grade plastic? If you were to pick between those two options, which both are pretty readily available in one form or another, do you have any sense of what the food safety world might might say on, on those sorts of, uh, that sort of comparison. Wow. Between wood and non food safe plastic. Um, 
had my my uh, my 13 year old daughter and my and my partner uh, just two nights ago were playing this game of of like you know choose between two horrible options the lesser uh, of two evils the lesser of two yeah. evils and and uh, I I don't know I mean so for me from a from a you got you got a couple of different considerations I mean one is sort of the practical like. I don't want to make people sick thing. Okay. And if that's the case, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not that concerned about wood. I, I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of feeling like, well, I can't sanitize it, but a lot of wood as I understand it. And here I am, you know, I'm, I'm being recorded here. So, uh, but it, it actually has antimicrobial properties to it. I mean, not all of it does, I don't think, but but certainly a lot of the wood out there does to some degree or another. And most of what we're, most of what we're dealing with are, are not what we would consider hazardous foods. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, I don't, I don't have any problem with washing stuff with wood and having food come in contact with wood as long as it's being, you know, washed down a visible dirt, uh, you know, other, other points of harborage are being removed. Um, I think if you, the challenge with with something like a barrel washer and making it out of plastic is that you're actually going to end up, I feel like, with a lot of scratches and crevices in that plastic, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and then you've created then you've created points where where you've got harborage of bacteria and there's no potential for cleaning it and sanitizing it because there's the bacteria are hiding just like they would in the pores in the wood, but now you you don't have any antimicrobial activity in a plastic. Sure. Um, now food grade, food grade versus non-food grade plastic. Um, the, the concern is usually with chemicals in there and it's not really from a bacterial bacterial food safety concern. Although I kind of, I mean, and, and this, I haven't been able to find anything to back this up, but I feel like, you know, non-food grade plastic is usually a little bit rougher. It doesn't have the same smooth surface um, to it. And I've always felt like maybe the bacteria could hide in some of those, that, that roughened surface being more difficult to get the sanitizer evenly distributed in that. Um, so, I, you know, again, between non-food grade plastic and, and wood, my, my organic sensibilities would say go with the wood. Uh, and, and of course then, you know, it's, it's not just what makes sense from a, um, you know, from a perceptual standpoint, but also it's what makes sense from a, from a, a legal standpoint. And it remains to be seen how the, the food safety modernization act is going to, is going to roll out on the requirements for wood versus, versus food grade materials. Um, you know, one of the big, one of the big premises in food safety is that, that you're not supposed to have food come in contact with things that weren't made specifically for handling food. You know, so, um, and, and again, I think this is, this is all coming from a stainless steel kitchen world and not coming at it from a, a biologically active farming world. Um, so if you've, you know, if you're using, if you're using wood, that's something that, that most food safety experts would say is not okay, but they're really, I feel like they're really coming out of a place where, um, where everything can be sanitized. And I'm just not convinced that that's the case in a, in a farm situation. Sure. 
Okay, we'll let the record state that uh, Chris Blanchard is a proponent of wood in packing sheds. I'm, right. I like wood. Recorded now, it, right? <laughs> that's recorded. Um, it, it'll be there for posterity. And uh, exactly. but yeah, I I like wood. Yeah. And this is this is a thing that we're we're dealing with a lot. Well, everyone is is you know food safety becomes more and more of a concern with with folks. But uh, in the Upper Peninsula specifically, we were one of the the sites for the Group Gap pilot program, and so there are a lot of people going through that process in this last season. Uh, you know, these micro farms on a quarter acre getting Gap certified, uh, which is I think very eye opening for the folks at USDA, but is also kind of an interesting um, I don't know an interesting application of the Gap program because it's not necessarily always there might not be the value of it there in a lot of instances but uh, it's really neat to see these programs being unrolled in areas where the growers would not necessarily be seeking that out or not necessarily have access to some of the resources that would make that process easier and the UP is turning out to be a prime example of kind of a, an outlier in that uh, people are doing this sort of certification even if they're on a very small scale and not doing much in the in the wholesale market and so that's something that that we've been dealing with a lot up here in partnership with a few other organizations in the area, um, this idea of food safety on, on very, very small farms. Well, and you know, my, my attitude about, about food safety, especially in very small operations is that you get 99% of, of the gain in food safety by just taking care of some really common sense things, you know, and, and I mean, number one is to have a proper hand washing facility. And I think once you've done that for most small farms, you're done. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I think everybody, everything else is marginal gains after that. And, and I know, you know, there's this whole idea that, that, that we want to have these adding up all of these food safety measures, um, what do they call it? The aggregation of marginal gains. This is a popular term right now. You know, if we can make everything, if you can make 10 things, 1% better that, that because it, because it compounds, you know, that's a, that's actually a really dramatic improvement. But I think sometimes we forget about some of the most fundamental things and how far those really get us in what's fundamentally a pretty safe environment. Mm -hmm. You know, wash your hands. Uh, Don't, don't, do your livestock chores and then go deal with vegetables and, you know, don't spread raw manure on the field right before you harvest. And, you know, uh, it's not that it's not that complicated. And one of the things I worry about when we, when we start looking at, at things like, like gaps is that you're worrying about all this food safety stuff. That's, that's kind of, um, that's marginal and that you can record, you know, you're not actually going to record every time somebody washes their hands. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted one place, I mean, if you really wanted to make a difference in food safety on your farm, you would figure out a way to, to monitor the hand washing by your employees before they go out to handle food, period. You know, if you're going to handle food, wash your hands, if you're going out to the field, wash your hands. Um, and if you actually had a way to, to ensure that that was happening, I think you'd, you'd be making a much bigger difference in the overall food safety scene than you are by, by having, uh, you know, non-porous materials in your barrel washer. Sure. You know, so. Yeah. Well, that's good point. Sorry. You got me ranting. 
No, uh, that's fine. I, 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 really... I appreciate these sorts of things. I love, uh, you know, when something, someone's passionate and knowledgeable about something, that's the best time to ask them about it, I'd say. Well, I get so frustrated with the food safety scene because I think so much of it is, as as uh, as Brian Snyder from PASA put it, it's food safety theater, and yeah. it really has nothing to do with creating uh, real results. And so much of the food safety research out there doesn't take place in farm environments, and it's not and it's not applicable. You know, with with FISMA, uh, the FDA basically said, you know, we're not going to issue any manure stand any standards for raw manure until there's more research because the research hasn't been done. Yes, yes. And I think I think that's the case across a huge spectrum of of the food safety world because because farms aren't commercial kitchens. They're fundamentally different. Uh, they're not they're not sterilizable. Is that a word? Sterilizable environments. They're 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 farms. They're biologically active, and then we and then we have this whole weird cusp where we go from the the biologically active outside world to suddenly you know and 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 that outside world being you know UV sanitized and all those other things that we like to talk about, and then you go indoors into this packing shed, but you're bringing in all this dirt and mud and living food, yep. and and that's a that's a very interesting. Uh, a, a very interesting edge. You know, the permaculture people talk about how, how edges are, are where all of the interesting things happen. And I think that's really true, but it's also much more difficult to quantify and make good science out of what's happening in the edges. Cause it's not very, it's not very susceptible to reductionist thinking, which is really what you have to do to get a scientific result. And especially when you're coming from the food and drug administration, which is all about, uh, all about control and, and, uh, and, and standardization rather than dealing with the, you know, the, the diversity and the life and the, the wonderful bounty that we have out in the fields. Mm -hmm. Okay. There, I just ranted some more. Sorry. (laughs) Not a problem. Okay. So with that, now I'm going to, I'm going to go to my tried and true method of turning the questions back on my guests here. And uh, we're going to go on to the lightning round. Colin. All so, right, I'm ready. Okay. All right. So what's your favorite tool on the farm? Uh, I'm going to, I've, I've listened to this podcast enough. I know it's okay to cheat a little bit. Um, oh, yeah, come on. You know, we're, you got to set a good example, Colin. You're, okay. you're a leader in the to, community okay, now. I'll, I'll pick one then. Um, it's one that I was introduced to by Jack Algier out at the Stone Barns as part of that, um, that grower summit I referenced earlier. It's called the groundskeeper rake. Are you familiar with this? This is, is this the big 30 inch, the 30 inch rake that Johnny sells for cleaning up your beds? Well, this is, so this is basically, I call it the poor man's tine weeder. Um, it's, believe it or not, I think it comes from Waverly, Iowa, just down the road from Decorah, but it's, uh, it's basically little spring tines on, and it's used, I mean, it's designed for, uh, you know, a leaf rake, but it's an aggressive spring tine on it that you can use for sort of real light disturbance of the soil, um, blind cultivation running down your beds. And so, um, he kind of demonstrated it for use in, in the high tunnel structures. And I used it there. I've used it in the field now and it's, it's a pretty amazing little tool for, um, for that sort of purpose. And it's like a $20 investment for, for a rake. So I bought six of them. I'm going to mount them on a toolbar and just have a real, real basic, uh, tine weeder. I mean, it doesn't have any of the adjustments that a Lily tine weeder would, but it is something that's really accessible to people and believe it or not, really quite effective. Um, so I'd say that's, that's probably my favorite tool as of late. 
Okay. So, so tell me your, tell me your source for that. Uh, I think it's like Eric's sharpening shop or something out of, out of Waverly, Iowa. It's, oh, really? uh, it's pretty basic, but I think Adam Lemieux at, at Johnny's has been doing a little research on it. So I don't know if it's something that they're going to start carrying, but, uh, yeah, if you go onto the, onto the web and search groundskeeper rake or groundskeeper two, or I, I don't remember exactly. It has okay. some different so, models or something, but it's, he's got different widths of them, um, and different, uh, I think all the heads are pretty standard, but, uh, yeah, you can buy them in packs. You can buy a single rake and it's, it's just a really cool thing to, to use both in the field and, the, and in the hoop house. It's really great in the hoop house because it's really maneuverable. You wouldn't think of bringing a time reader into the hoop house normally, but, uh, it does work pretty well. Great. We'll find a source for that and make sure that it's included in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Last book that you read. Uh, well, I've got, uh, I'm kind of doing some simultaneous, I guess. I'm actually working on a graduate degree at, right now, so I'm doing some um, scholarly reading, if you want to say that. Um, but my last sort of pleasure read or, or self-improvement read, um, a Tim Ferriss book, actually. I hadn't read anything by him. I've, I've heard of him um, and learned a little bit about him, but I've just recently started into The 4-Hour Chef, which is his take on sort of, uh, he's using cooking or, or becoming a chef as sort of a, a case study for the, the learning process. That is, you know, how can we be as efficient as a, and effective um, when learning a new skill or trade or craft? And, and that's, you know, on a farm, you got to know, you got to be proficient at least in, in a lot of different things. So I really enjoy kind of taking on new skills and, and, and learning new things. And so that's, uh, that's been kind of eye-opening to learn another person's perspective on just that, that process itself. That's a great recommendation. I like that. Um, your favorite crop to grow? <clears throat> I'm a carrot guy. I, I really love a clean, clean field of carrots. Um, there's something really, I don't know, really rewarding about the harvest of them too. And when you get a good harvest off of it, you feel more accomplished as a grower, I think. And I, I transitioned, you know, I was always uh, viewed as the place uh, with, with deep black dirt, but where we were growing in Northeast Iowa, we had pretty heavy soils. And when I came up here, um, I inherited some, some really nice sandy loam, uh, not without stones. That's pretty characteristic up here, but that's made for beautiful carrot harvests. Um, it's a real nice, long, good looking carrots. So I think that's, as of now, that's, that's my favorite. Any, any secrets for the weed control on that? Uh, stale, stale seed bedding, of course. And then believe it or not, this little, uh, this little tying leader has been one of the things I've really relied on. Um, does a pretty good job of, of cleaning them up and not damaging any of the carrots as they emerge. But, you know, I'll do the whole, uh, stale seed bed for, for a week or two beforehand before planting. And then I'll do the pre-emergence flame weeding, which is a black backpack, excuse me, a backpack flame weeder. Um, and that does a pretty, pretty good job. And then anything else I'll just hit with a little tine weeder. Um, and yeah, I've been, been really pleased with how they've, the, how they've come together this year. Um, and I've pulled several of our storage carrots just to kind of monitor their progress and they're, they're looking beautiful. All right. And, uh, if you could choose a farmer's superpower, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think, um, I think I would probably, 
have some sort of lasers that shot. I'm trying to get, really embrace this idea of superpower here. I would have lasers that shoot out of my eyes and eliminate all weeds in, in the fields. I, uh, I'm a snob for clean fields, and so if I were to be able to do that just by looking at the field, I think uh, that's really what I would do. Huh, I think like a lot of superpowers that just take all the fun out of it. <laughs> I don't know. I've, then I then I'd choose uh, the ability to fly because everyone. Okay. That. <laughs> um, and and uh, last purely recreational activity that you did. Oh, um, you know, like I said earlier, this is a a, a really great place to to recreate. And so um, I try to make a lot of time for that sort of thing because it's just a, a perfect environment for it. So went canoeing, hit the uh, Indian River uh, over in Hiawatha National Forest, which is just down the road from us here. We uh, were surrounded by some really beautiful forested ground. So uh, that was a, a good weekend trip with some really good folks that hit the river and um, spent some good time on the water. Great. And... If you could go back in time and tell yourself before you got started in this whole farming thing, one thing, what would it be? Um, I think, I think it has to do a little bit with my own personality, but, uh, I've been known to have a little bit of an ego. At least I would classify my, classify myself as someone who's a, a bit too proud at times. And so what I think I would do, I think what I would say to myself is don't be afraid to, uh, ask the stupid questions. Um, be as, as humble or as modest as possible, especially when interacting with, with seasoned growers and skilled growers. Um, just because that's, and most of the time, if you ask what you perceive as a stupid question, it's never perceived as a stupid question by the, the person who's uh, responding. It's just uh, it's more of just a way of engaging with another grower. And so I think that's really a phenomenal way of learning is just put ego aside um, and really just dive into some of the things that you're wondering about with these really talented growers. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to come across or cross paths with a lot of really amazing uh, farmers out there. And so um, I think I've taken advantage of it, but I know I could have done a better job. And so I'd encourage anyone just, yeah, put your, put your ego aside, uh, be humble, be modest, and, and really be a sponge when you have those opportunities to, to soak up some additional wisdom from other growers. Hey, and we'll of course have links to this in the, in the show notes, but I forgot to ask you uh, just to put it, put out there, how do people find you? Sure. If they uh, want if they want to get information about what you've got going on at North Farm. Yeah, so we've got our own little website. Uh, it's msunorthfarm.org, um, and that's kind of our our main landing site for learning about the incubator, learning about um, you know our production models, and, and also all the other educational programming that we have here on site. So that'd be a good place to start. There are also other university resources out there. The center page, the Uprec center page, as you could find if you just Google Uprec, it's I think the first thing that comes up. But for things specific to the North Farm, I would say msunorthfarm.org is the best. Place place to, to check us out. Thank you so much for making the time here on a Saturday morning, Colin, to talk with us about your, your incubator farm up there in the, in the UP. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks so much, not only for letting me join you, but for uh, putting this resource out there. I know it's been really helpful for me, and I think uh, same is true for a lot of other people out there. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 31 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Thompson. That's T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. 
Hearing loss is cumulative, which means that you lose a little bit of your hearing each time you expose yourself to noises that are a little too loud for your ears. And because I want you to be able to listen to this podcast for years to come, I want to make sure that you've got your ears protected while you're out doing your fall tractor work this year. And if you can listen to the podcast while you're doing it, that's all the better. My favorite solution for listening to audio while doing work that requires ear protection is the Peltor 2600N noise isolating earbuds. They do a great job of keeping the loud sounds out and the good sounds in. And because they stick right in my ears instead of going over my head like larger on-ear models, I can wear my Shady Brady straw hat, keeping my head cool and my skin healthy while I'm protecting my hearing at the same time. Plus, if you go through farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash earbuds to get a pair, it helps to support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. It is worth noting that the show does take a substantial amount of time to produce Our sponsors like Vermont Compost and Farmigo CSA Management Software for this episode and Fertrell, Osborne Seed Company, Second Cut Media, and Audible for previous shows really support this work. Accessing their web pages through the show notes page and the sponsorship page on my website provides them with a way to measure your engagement. And of course, so does mentioning that you hear their ads on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listeners, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook, that Purple Pitchfork, or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. With that, keep weathering the weather, be safe out there, and keep the tractor running.